as we're in Romans chapter 4, getting some good justification, which I'm sure a lot of you guys were really excited about. It's probably going, man, I can't wait to talk more about justification and the weight and the wonder that God, in his sovereignty and plan and purpose, brings about. And in diving into this, it's this, this week of kind of going weak at the knees in wonder and awe that the God who has all power and control to accomplish his purpose chose me and chose you to, to justify and to say, you know what, they're horrible, miserable sinners. All they want to do is sin. I'm going to declare them right and I'm going to work on them to glorify them and it's going to be awesome because I'm going to get the glory and it's all about me. And, and the wonder of that, and in the midst of... Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah and everyone that hates Israel. And then there's Paul going, hey, let's talk about Abraham. Let's go back to this and make this argument. And yet today people are arguing and people are wondering, hey, why are people shooting each other? Well, if you read your Bible, God told you. He didn't just say today is the day where the earth is groaning and wanting its redemption as God holds everything molecularly molecularly and cellularly together, he's also caring about our souls. And yet he allows, he allows for sin and evil. And yet somehow he works that to show how good he is. And, and the church plays a vital role. And God planned that for a purpose to say, we're going to care for people. And we're going to manage this, this tension and not try and just be legalistic. And then Paul gets into the legalism. And he's like, man, you guys are so in love with the law. Just stop. Why are you making it all about communion, baptism, and confession, and circumcision? It's all about Jesus. Martin Luther described the doctrine of justification by faith as the article of faith that decides whether the church is standing or falling. I was struck by that because I had no clue justification was that important. And I I know why. As I read Martin Luther and and J.I. Packer commenting on this, he said this, the doctrine of justification, when you hear about justification, it's actually an indicator if the church is standing or falling. He says, by this he meant that when this doctrine is understood, believed, and preached, as it was in the New Testament, as Paul's making this initial argument for the basis of our salvation, for the confidence we have in Christ, the church stands in the grace of God and is alive. But where it is neglected, overlaid, or denied, the church falls from grace and its life drains away, leaving it in a state of darkness and death. And you may say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I think there's other, just read Revelations. There's, seven, there's a letter to the church, the seven churches. It was written to them and it was written for us because they forgot the doctrine of justification. They started taking a pen out and drawing circles around people that they could just include. The problem was when you draw circles, you're still drawing lines. And the gospel was never to say, hey, you get to have a pen and you get to have a pen and you get to... No, when Jesus drew in the sand, when there was an issue of sin, and people were seeking to self-justify because of their circles they drew, and, and they started to draw in the sand, 
and drew lines and saying, look, we're right and she's wrong. We're going to stone her. She's caught in sin, Jesus. And Jesus bent down and, and drew in the sand. And a lot of commentators think he was probably drawing the sins that everyone had. And he said, all right, whoever doesn't have these sins, you can, you've been self-made right, but you can hurt her. Showing that we in our sin always want to look good. We always want to boast. They're boasting. They're like, we go to church every day. We were born in this family. We are without that sin so I can judge her and I'm made right. I I can self-justify myself. And Jesus says, time out. I'm sovereign. I'm God. I'm going to step into my creation, help you understand my love, my grace. And ultimately, you need to look to the work. You're boasting in your works. You're boasting in your works, but you need to look to my work. You need to boast in my work. And so that's where we're going is looking at we're created to boast. We're created to worship, but boasting's harm is when we worship the self, the created rather than the creator. Secondly, we have a cure for boasting. It's humility. When we realize as Jesus came and humbled all of us and realize, okay, we can't earn our way. He earned it. He paid the price for us. So humbly, I need to be like Jesus and be a humble servant, fully devoted to following Jesus. That's the definition of a disciple, one who follows Christ. And then how do we practice that humble faith? How do we practice that humble faith? This idea of of justification. Instead of saying, hey, you can talk like us and look like us, and here's the set of expectations, or here's the things we're going to allow and these sins we're going to allow. And at the same time, we have, as Jesus did, the open arms. It's not about lines. It's about the open arms of Christ saying, his open arms invite all to be saved when he was nailed on the cross. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about grace. And with that, it reveals the weight of sin and how much it costs the Savior to justify us. And that's why I think Martin Luther was saying, man, churches are rising and falling if they're preaching justification, if they're wrestling with this and they're holding us to task because It's the goodness of God that saves, not our ability to do good works without Christ. As we think about this last week, in a lot of ways, the shock for some, the awe and the horror in others, it brings us back to the reality of where Paul goes, how it all started biblically. If you know history and you know your Bible, even commentators from Saudi Arabia were saying, look, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, the king of Saudi Arabia, laid it down. It's like, hey, it's Abraham, listen to Sarah, not God, through Hagar had Ishmael. Then through Sarah, his rightful wife obeyed God and had Isaac, and there the descendants have been warring ever since. Sin has real consequences. And yet, the innocent people caught in the middle. But really, we're all guilty of sin, and so we pray for salvation. We pray that when there's time, while there's time, the God of salvation would reveal himself and and save. As we see the author of Romans, which is the longest letter that we have from biblical times, who was also a terrorist that God saved, if you think about it. He was on the way to go commit horrible acts, 
killing innocent women and children, abducting them, throwing them in a cage, just like we hear in the news, and Jesus showed up. The answer has always been Jesus. The prophets talked about him. The New Testament revealed how the prophets talked about him, and then Revelation says he's coming back. And we have to have the whole scripture to understand the point and the weight and how wonderful it is that he saved us. He saved Paul. And we can pray for that. So let's pray now before we jump in, Lord. We know the little headlines we see that cause us great concern, Lord. There's many that have been blinded. We know it's a spiritual battle. We know it's ultimately the, the peace is needed from the Prince of Peace. And we pray, Lord, that you'd reveal your, yourself in a way that only you do like you did with Saul, like you did with many others who, who were living in sin against you, terrorizing you, coming against your bride. Lord, we pray that you would save them and draw them as the hour draws near before you come and get your bride. And we pray these things in Jesus' name as well as the church, that you would give them opportunities to share, to care, to love, and to remind them that you're the God that redeems, that heals, that comforts, and somehow works through all that's happening for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about boasting and the harm that comes, we realize, and probably the, the clearest picture as I was studying, the need not to boast in ourselves, because when we realize how lost and, and, and confused and distorted the lies are that we believe while we're in sin, we see a perfect picture here. Saturday, September 2013, one of the most deadly terror attacks to that point was in Nairobi, Kenya. Four gunmen, part of Al-Qaeda, went into a, a mall and 67 people were killed and 200 injured. And there was a woman, Snea, there in the mall getting a coffee with a friend. And when the gunmen opened fire, a lot of them were wounded and, and were on the ground. And she hit the ground and, and heard a cell phone going off and trying to silence the cell phone to not alert the gunmen to come towards her. She realized the man that had the cell phone had been wounded and was bleeding out. And so she in an act of desperation, took his blood and covered herself with it in hopes to camouflage and also be covered by the blood so that the terrorists would see her and realize she was, think she was dead. And as the terrorists walked by her, seeing the blood and, and continued, she tells the NBC correspondent that was interviewing her, when I put my hand under him and realized that this guy had been shot, he was bleeding, there's a lot of blood there. She says, I'd love to know who he was because I think his blood protected me and saved my life. We think about the act of justification. It's Christ's blood over us. It's, it's God saying because Jesus is perfect and right and holy, it's his blood that's going to cover you. And I'm going to declare you right. It's in a court of law. We use these terms that... Initially, I thought I would be a lawyer. They make a lot of money and they help people. My second career choice was a missionary, just helping people and not making any money, but relying on other people's funds to do God's work. 
So it's interesting when I go into the court of law language and I, and I put myself in that and it's like, man, God and, and Paul, they love to go into these legal terms. And it's amazing because when you're the, when you're the recipient, right? When you're the guilty party and the judge says, hey, you're good, you're free, you're innocent, this other guy's going to pay the bill. Because I'm a millennial, I grew up thinking that's how the world worked. Everything was justified. Everything's just handed to me. You want a new phone? Last year, we made you pay for it. This year, just sign here. We'll just give you a new phone every year. Don't worry about it. Awesome. Who? Just get free things. You need a shot here. It's free. Okay, how does that? You know what? We're the government. There's a debit card in the mail. Just whatever. Here's money. You know, it's just like, that's weird because I thought you had to work for this stuff. Like this, this concept of getting receiving things... That's why Paul says, hold on, are we just going to take advantage of this grace? This isn't normally how it works. Are we boasting? Because we're people who boast. You look at uh, Deion Sanders and what he's done with the Colorado program, and, and when you think of boasting, so many people take a pause because that's all he's been doing is boasting. And then it com- comes time for game time, and he realizes he's not on the field anymore as a player. He's the coach, and so he's like, oh, I've been boasting, my players are going to do this thing, but... I don't have my power in me to put in them. There's, there's a disconnect there. And it's interesting how there's always been this cultural ritual of boasting, right? We can do it. We can get it. We're strong enough. We're good enough. You see it around the Super Bowl. Everyone attacks the other team. Oh, those quarterback can't throw. That receiver can't catch. And we're going to destroy him. This is what God says is the problem with every human heart. As we look at beauty or smarts, you look at your talent, you look at anything good about yourself, your achievements, and you start boasting in who you are and what you believe, thinking, I did that. You take credit for it. You see it as your accomplishment, but they're really gifts from God. You were born with the talent he gave you to give him glory and enjoy the good that comes from using the gifts he gave you. But the heart of man is to boast in ourselves. We see Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. John 17. To know God is eternal life. If you're going to boast, boast the fact that you know me. They came back, Jesus is awesome, we did miracles, I'm going to open a school of miracles, I cast demons out of people. Whoa, whoa, time out, hold up. Don't be too excited, you cast demons, of course you cast demons out in my name. I'm God, I created it all. They have to do that. You should be boasting in the fact your names are written in the book of life. You should be boasting that I'm about to justify you. You don't deserve it, you're not worthy, in fact you're the opposite, but because of my grace and mercy, I'm going to declare you right. Boast in that. If you boast anything, boast that you know me and that I'm the Lord. I love to name drop. That's just, uh, someone pointed that out. And they're like, man, you kind of name drop. I met this person. Oh, do you know that person? Oh, yeah. I got, a, I got a meeting lined up with John MacArthur when I was in college. He canceled on me. But I could still name drop, right? You know, you can still drop, hey, I was going to meet this guy. And I met this pastor and I met that. And now certain people I don't name drop anymore for reasons. But then you realize, like, oh, my goodness. If we're boasting, I don't even, I, I'm smart enough to know I can't boast in myself, but I'll boast in other people. But why, why don't we boast in the Lord? Why in our conversations are we not like, oh my goodness, in all sincerity, 
Waking up in the morning, I shouldn't be alive right now, but I'm going to boast in that God justified me. He's sanctifying me. He's working in me for his plan and his will to accomplish his purpose. No matter what horrible thing can happen, I'm here. I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm going to boast in what he's doing. Because he's got some perfect plan he's working out. He says that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What is Jeremiah saying? What, what is God saying here? God is saying is that every soul is going to boast about something. Every soul is going to worship something. But the way the word boast here in Hebrew, it's halal, which comes from hallelujah, which means to praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. Here we're seeing Paul tell us every single soul makes a boast about something as it looks at something. If you have money, look at all the money I have. If you have athletic ability, look at how athletic I am. If you have beauty, look at my looks. If you have smarts, look at my intelligence. That always bothered me in school. People are like, oh, I have straight A's. I'm like, yeah, that, I don't know how that happens. That'd be crazy if I could do that. But I work just as hard and I put in the work, but you're just somehow, we have different letters on the grade sheet and they used to post those things. It's not online where you look at it in the privacy. It was like right there, name and grade. Everyone knew what you had. But you boast in that, right? So I was like, well, at least I got an A in PE. I'm, at least I'm athletic. So I'll boast in my athleticism. This is why I'm worthy of love. I'm valuable. This is why I'm worthy of applause and cheering. I'm boasting in this. You boast in your ability. You find that thing that, that God's gifted you. We all have something. We boast in that. This is my significance. Or we're looking for that. This is where my value lies. I've accomplished this. And God says, no. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because boasting is a battle cry. Right? Every Super Bowl on the battle, they'd, they'd boast and taunt each other. And it's that in us. It's that thing. You see it at a young age. Even kids on the soccer field, they, they're not supposed to keep score, right? It's like, you got to be kidding me. They're humans. They're sinners. They want to keep, who's better? We're going to boast about who's better. And they already look at cleats and shirts and jerseys and soccer ball. That's not that good as that. And they start boasting and comparing. It's a ritual boast. It's in us. What does it mean when you're ground when you ground your identity that is to say when you boast in something you have or something you do it's your identity it builds you up and when you do that it divides the human race that's what we see right now they find their identity in a set of rules and religion and if you don't agree with their rules and their religion then they'll kill you with with islam and you say hey denounce that you want jews dead and no one who's who's focusing on Islam and Muhammad in support of any of that ideology will ever denounce the, the terror of Hezbollah or Hamas because it's in that book that tells them to do that. And so their ideology says this against this. And then the modern problem with the church is we try and do the same thing. And we, we're going to draw these, these lines and these circles and we're going to kind of accommodate and we're going to do this. And it's like, just look at the cross. It's for all nations, all times, all tribes, all people he forgave, so we're going to draw people to that. We're going to point people to him and let him save because he alone saves and he'll do the work. And that's why the world hates it because it can't control it. And anytime we boast in ourselves, we're going to divide 
Anytime we start looking at what we have and say, oh, I'm different, I know this, I believe this, I do this, it's going to divide. That's why boasting is harmful. The ultimate boast of your soul is you're a good person. You're going to church, you're studying the Bible, you obey the Bible, your doctrine is perfectly in order, it's tight. Then you have to despise people who disagree with you. You have disdain for them. You get to mistreat them. If the ultimate boast of your soul is I'm part of this great people, this nationality, this ethnic group, this group is the right people and you're all wrong, then you get to treat them like less than people. I'll never forget when I was in San Diego. As you've heard on the news, it's actually been happening a lot longer than the past three years or whatever. We've been taking in people from all over the world. And a lot of religious refugees, not just political, because in Africa, where where Islam spread, there's a family that I got to meet as they came to San Diego and a family in the church I was serving in. We're caring for them and we're teaching them how to swim. Boasting in my, I'm like, I know how to teach swimming. I have a water pole. I'll teach you. And I'm talking to the mom and just, you know, small talk. And she's like, yeah, our husband, their father was, died in Africa he had, a, he had the flu, it was really bad, and took him to the hospital, but it was all Muslims in the hospital. So they just wouldn't treat him because he's a Christian. And I thought, I was like, man, what jerks. They're just humans believing what we all believe before we're saved, that we boast in what we do. We boast in our ability. We boast in what we know to be true. We're grown up in a culture that says we're the right people. We have the right way to life. They're wrong, so we're going to treat them less than. And we're going to let them die in the hallway. And so they, they, they fled. And it's, it's interesting how that's true for me as it is for you as it is for anyone that's apart from Christ. God doesn't justify us based on our worthiness Instead, by justifying us, he makes us worthy. God doesn't justify us based on our worthiness. Instead, by justifying us, by declaring us right, because Christ hung on a cross, he makes us worthy. We see Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because if, verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But he wasn't justified by his works. He has nothing to boast about. God showed up one day and was like, Abram, take a walk, pack up your tent. Which wasn't like a Coleman tent from Big Five. It was a whole elaborate, super legit, which I had never really thought about. or either always thought it was Coleman. I'm like, dude, he has probably got a 10-person big old Coleman tent for him and his wife and two kids. Like, that's kind of a small, all right, let's pack up. Like, that's what we do. We just live in, no, it's a legit, huge tent with rooms in it. And when I was in Israel, we got to go in one of those tents. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a lot of work. Now I can tell why Abram was like, oh, where are we going? And that would have been kind of a tough conversation. Hey, wife, I know we just put, we just put the tent up. We got to go. Yeah, God, the one true God apparently created us. He wants us to go. We're going to go. Where? Uh, we're just going to go. And that is where God justified us. Not because we're worthy. Not because Abram's worthy. Not because David was worthy. But because by justifying us, he makes us worthy. So the cure for our boasting is humility. We see in verse 
10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Before he did any work to show that he was set apart. There's no boasting for Abram. We see the second story he tells. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due in verse 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he tells the famous Psalm 32, where, where David's repenting from committing adultery and murder with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sins. We see as he continues this argument, verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's saying, look, the cure for boasting is humility, realizing we're all sinners, realizing Abraham sinned, David sinned, and it's, it's interesting, the other point, looking at religions, they, they either belittle sin or they remove it altogether. In, in the Quran, they look at David and there's no, there's no adultery, there's no sin issue. It's interesting because, well, that's awesome. But God always, when he chooses a character, humiliates him. Because it's not about David. It's not about you're going to be the David and kill challenges in your life and they're the Goliaths. No, it's about realizing God owns the battle. Whatever you're facing, God's going to bring about the victory for his glory and you're good. And we see it time and time again. But it's always pointing towards Jesus, who's the ultimate Who's the savior that we need to save us, to heal us? And so ultimately it humbles us. And both we see the thing we need is, is faith. And where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law. No. When we observe the law, we realize and are humble we can't fulfill the law or keep the law. So then the problem is every time someone comes to me and goes, hey, pastor, that's hard. You talked about being justified, but I can't self-justify. I can't do all the right things all the time. Exactly. No one can, but one. And he already did it and died on the cross and rose again. So we don't have to worry about the weight. We want to do it. We have a desire to do it. And now we have his spirit in us enabling us. But on that of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. What does that word justified mean? When a man works, his wages are credited to him, not as a gift, but as an obligation. But the gift is that we're justified, we're made right, apart from our works. When we do good works, then the ultimate boast is saying, God, you owe me. I did all these good things. And that's where religion comes in. With Mormonism and Latter-day Saints and Joe's witness and, and in Islam, you have to do these good things and then maybe you'll get to this heaven or you'll get to this level or hopefully if you, if you do all the things and Allah is having a good day, then you get a chance. But if he's having a bad day and you did all the good things, no chance. There's no security. But you're boasting in your works. And Paul's saying you can't boast in that. You have to be humble. This word, Logis, 
omai is an accounting word. It's the word of ledgers and accountants. It's saying that though you may have earned a million, if it's credited to you, if it's put into your account, it's now yours to spend. Even though you may not have earned the million, if it's in your account, it's yours to spend. I remember uh, in the early days of depositing things with your phone, because I'm super tech forward, you know, don't wait around for things to be ironed out. So I got a reimbursement check, and I, and I tried to deposit it, and I deposited it on the PayPal online, and then it didn't really go through for a couple days. So I was like, that's weird. I'll just deposit it into my bank account. And then somehow, magically, it doubled because that 500 reimbursement check went into two accounts. And I didn't know about it because I'm not an accountant. I'm not checking the numbers every day. And so then about a week, three weeks go by and the accountant at the church goes, hey, so that $500 check, you, you deposited twice. I'm like, oh, okay, I owe you 500. My, I didn't, no, it's not. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. PayPal emailed and said it's like a technological error on their end, it's not your bad, you didn't intend to do it because it didn't process, so you didn't know, so it's your money. What? That's awesome. Because that happens to all of us, right? Just 500 bucks in your account. You're like, uh, really? I just got an extra. That was not earned, not deserved. If anything, there's a questionable action on my behalf. And yet, there's money in my account that's free to spend. That's the idea of justification. God says, I declare you right, not by any work on our behalf. Paul says at the end of the case study in 2.25, the circumcision you want is the circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh, but the spirit, not of the written code. You want the new birth, the new heart. You're not looking for praise from men, but from God because of all the goodness that God's given you. We see this praise, this idea that we're not just looking for our account to be credited, but we want the praise of God to say you're doing the right thing. But the only way to do the right thing is if we have a new heart and a new mind. So the justification is just the start. Where we have the resources in the account going, wait, what? I'm not guilty? I'm innocent? Yeah, and also, here's your new skill set to go and live, not stealing, but serving people. Not looking to get the praises of men, but you're living for the praises of God. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, when I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find people such as Milton and Aquinas understanding heavenly glory in the same sense of fame with God. What he is saying, what you've always heard all your life is when you're in heaven with God, we will be in glory. But what does that mean? The idea of us being in glory. He suddenly realizes Thomas Aquinas and John Milton said, what it means to live in glory means fame with God, the applause and the accolades, the praise, the delight of God. They understood that being in glory is exactly what we were longing for. We want to boast in something. We want to be in that victory circle. That's why everyone watches TVs where there's a tension. Who's going to come out on top? Who's the victory? And at the end of the Super Bowl, where are you going? What are you doing? Oh, we're going to Disneyland. Everyone wants to be down there. And all the fans rush the field. And yeah, we won. It's, that's, the, that's the moment where, yes, we're in heaven. We're in perfect unity, oneness with God, not because we earned it, but because he declared us just. And it's interesting as we think about this, it's not enough to raise my thoughts to what might happen when the redeemed 
souls are in glory, beyond all hope, and nearly beyond belief, when we learn that the last soul has pleased him, and we learn that we continue to seek his glory, not praise for men, when we, when we realize that our souls, every chance we get to get something from people, and it makes us feel that warm fuzzy, and we realize, you know what? As, as a kid, there's probably a brief moment where I really did want to just serve my parents, or I really did want to be nice, not to get anything back. But even as, as kids, that, that brief glimmer of innocence was quickly faded when you, when you started to realize what's in it for me, right? If I do this, then I get this. If I do the chores, I get money. If I'm nice to my sister, then I don't get disciplined, because if I'm not nice to her, then I get disciplined. There's always a give and take, but here it's this perfect harmony and unison of humility of saying, I'm not worthy to be here, and yet I'm in the midst of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it's all good, and we're one. So the, the problem is boasting in ourselves. The solution, the antidote, is humility. So how do we practice this humble faith? You know, it's one thing to kind of be inspired and say, okay, I see what this is. Not boasting in myself, boasting God. I'll memorize some verses. We'll have a good week. We'll see you next Sunday. But how do we practice this humble faith? Because if it's really this replacing self-praise and looking for applause from others and looking to praise God, first we must see what it costs you to be forgiven and get this praise. I read it to you earlier if you spoke Hebrew, you'd understand these words translated into English. Actually, the lawless deeds are forgiven. When, when David is writing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, it means you, you've missed the mark and your sins are forgiven, which means they've literally been, been, been picked up. And then he says, whose sins are covered. So the rebellious heart all those things you did intentionally against God, those are picked up. The sins, missing the mark, those are covered by the blood and then not counted against you. The sins aren't counted against you. They're, they're carried away. They're deleted from your account. You can't recover those emails. There's no more evidence. There's no more receipts. You're completely forgiven. Your sins are literally picked up, covered, carried away. That's what it costs to be forgiven. Every year, Leviticus 16, you can read about it. They had a goat. They had two goats. One would die. The other one was a scapegoat. That's where we get the idea of a scapegoat because all the sins of the community would be put on that goat, literally picked up on the goat. The goat would carry it away and the blood would be covering the sin and the, and the goat would be, be carried away. And after a few years, the goat would uh, sometimes come back in the village and that was super awkward because... You know, maybe you, you committed adultery and then the sin was put on the goat and then the next morning the goat shows up in your yard and there's your sin of adultery on the goat in your yard. Kind of awkward. So they, they realized, hey, we need to actually kill the goat. So they, that's where the tradition in, in Leviticus 16 you can read about. But they take the goat up to a cliff and with a rope around its neck and a rope around a tree, they'd push the goat off and, and hang it and kill it because then your sin was literally not counted against you. And they would do that yearly. And it said that when, when Jesus died on the cross, that's another year that the goat walked back in. Because they didn't need the goat anymore. Jesus finished it. He paid the price. It was done. 
I don't know if it's true or not, but that'd be a little interesting and I think kind of humorous of God to send the goat back in. And no, it's not about the goat anymore. That was pointing to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's what it cost for you to be forgiven is the Savior, God's Son, on the cross to justify you. It costs someone. God has to be, as a holy God, punish sin. So as Paul's referring back to David to remind us what it costs to be forgiven, and we see that Abraham understood what God was doing for him. We see that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. And there we see when he says, oh, I believe now, they're having this conversation. And normally the, the conversation probably would have gone on Abraham saying, okay, God, you've promised that I'm going to have these, these nations that are going to come from me. How am I going to uphold this covenant? And he would have said like, shoot, how am I going to, that's a pretty big promise. How am I going to hold up my end of the deal to make sure I get what you promised? But instead, Abraham puts it on God and says, okay, you made these pretty big claims, God. How am I going to know that you're going to follow through on delivering here? And God says, all right, here's the deal. Go get, get a couple animals, cut them in half, let the blood flow. And that's what you would do in a covenant. You'd both walk through it and say, okay, if you renege on your commitment, then you're going to be like these animals. So I'm going to uphold the covenant and I'm going to bless you. And if I don't, then I'm going to be like these animals. And so then God kind of does a Heisman stiff arm, pushes Abraham to the side and, and this, this smoldering pot and, and a torch went through the middle where the blood was saying, I promise to bless you. And if I don't, then, then God who always has been, always will be the Alpha and the Omega, the, the, the creator God, it will be like to these, these animals. That will be the thing that will come to God. And so basically Abraham's like, okay, I believe. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes, and it would, you know, like God's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He could have just been like, oh, by the way, Abram, don't hang out with Hagar. Probably want to think about replacing her. Just a pro tip. Just throwing that out there. He doesn't. He doesn't. He just leaves it. And he knows what's going to happen. And somehow God lets, allows, and uses, and works for his glory and his goodness and his sovereignty. And yet, while he's 100% sovereign, Men are 100% responsible for willful disobedience. And we see Abraham was never asked to walk through it. God was saying, I'll take the curse. Let the curse fall on me. I'll bless you, even if it means me being torn to pieces. Why would, why would God do that? Paul knows. He's more brilliant than me. He writes, obviously, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, writing through him in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself. That's the response. That's how we respond. We, we boast in Jesus on the cross. We have to replace our boasting. Once we see what it costs the Savior to purchase our sin and declare us just and to justify us, as believers, 
then we, we, we shift our boasting, not from us, but for his name be the glory. And that's where, as we end, if you have yet to say, I don't understand it fully, join the club. We're all reading and learning and growing and learning language to articulate what, what it is that we've known about God and are saved. And then we grow in that relationship as we go out and share the gospel. But you have to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and believe humbly that God declares you right as Abraham believed. And it was declared righteousness. And we see, I've made you the father of many nations, was the promise. In verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, Paul says. He's blunt, brutal, calls it like it is. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So this idea of faith, as we believe in Jesus, payment for our sins, declaring us right and justifying us, then secondly, we see we have to make an appropriate taunt. We have to boast in Jesus. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Paul says in Galatians. Summarizing chapter 3 and chapter 4, you're like, Pastor, you could have just said that. We could, I know, it's simpler, but we got to get deep into this. And obviously it was big enough that Paul kept repeating it. Galatians 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What is it in the world believer that you have to think that way and, and reorient your boasting, not in your own ability, but in Christ's ability to save you, in his transformation of you, to think like him, act like him, and love the things he loves. The world is now crucified to me, and I to the world. There's a, a woman years ago, I, I heard this awful story about, she'd, she'd grown up all her life giving herself to men and often having no boundaries, so verbal, physical abuse, and, and she just for years constantly went from man to man and she the reason was because well she'd felt in her heart of hearts as long as I have a man loving me then I'm worth something her identity she was boasting and as long as I'm in a relationship then I'm I'm worth something as long as I have this relationship then I'm somebody and I have nothing else going for me no wealth no skills no ability no job but as long as I have a relationship then I'm worth somebody no matter how bad the relationship is it's a relationship and she said then I understood the gospel I started looking at me and I started to say under my breath maybe you're the guy for me maybe I'll marry you that's fine but I want you to know something you're not my life Christ is my life you're not my identity I don't need your love to know that I'm somebody what she was doing is she was taunting, she was boasting, she was saying, you're not my life, you're not giving me identity, Jesus is. Jesus is my identity. Because what God promised to do for Abraham, 
and, and for David, he did in Jesus for you and me and for them. And when we look at our relationships, we look at our abilities, we look at our talents, it's not in them that we have life, it's in Christ. He's our life. So this definition of living, confidently trusting in God's promises and put a line there, not our problems. Because we trust in our problems for our identity. We trust in, in the things that, that maybe cripple us or hinder us from really realizing God's promises. And we're distracted or we're confused by the problems of this world or of our lives. Or maybe the sin that continues to entangle us. And the author of Hebrews says, no, lay that aside. By faith, are you living confidently, trusting in God's promises? Are you living confidently, even though Paul brings up unbelief? At, at, at some level, Abram was probably questioning, like, eh, how? But he didn't keep that from growing in his faith and going, well, I'm not sure how scientifically, molecularly, biologically, but I trust the God that created that can give life to the dead. He'll figure it out. Are we living confidently, trusting in God's promises, not our problems? Let's pray. God, we pray that we would replace boasting in ourselves to boasting in you. Not our works, but yours. Not our will, but yours be done. As we understand this idea of justification that you've declared us just and right that we would be covered by your blood and be saved and those that are crying out to you are acknowledging and surrendering and accepting that you have saved them today by believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth that they'd be saved we pray you'd come near to them comfort them strengthen them to walk in that new life we pray for those that are here as believers that we would open our eyes and see where maybe we need to boast more in you and not in ourselves or not in the gifts you've given us, but in you, the giver, that you've made it right. You've made us right in your sight. And as we take the communion and the elements, we're reminded that we need to boast in you, Jesus, in your work that made us right so that you can continue to work in and through us for your glory, making us worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.